While many of the innovations in this space are new, they're built on decades of work that led to this point. By tracing this history, we can understand the motivations behind the movement that spawned Bitcoin and share its vision for the future. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We've got a great read today. This is another one from Jameson Lop, uh, and this one is actually a blast from the past. This is way back from 2016, but uh, when I was getting back into it, I was doing an audio version for, for Lop, and as I was getting back into it, I just thought specifically because of the context of 2016 that this would be a really fun one to cover. Not only just because, you know, talking about cypherpunks and the history, which we really actually haven't done in quite some time on this show. We've done it numerous times, but it's been hundreds of episodes back probably now that we've really kind of dug into some of those details. And this one just has a lot of foundational stuff from the 80s and 90s and basically the history that led to Bitcoin. But also it was kind of the last period in which every other project other than Bitcoin wasn't just a shitcoin in which, and I don't mean that in the sense, I mean in the sense that there were actually people trying to do things with the system of Bitcoin as it was. This was in 2016. This was just before the 2017 bull run. And it was when projects were actually attempting to do something largely. I would say at least half. And while I still consider them having made an economic era error and failing to understand some of the elements, it's still the the only thing that I have ever thought of as interesting or as potentially viable that I try to kind of treat in the same way as the difference between like TCP IP and Tor is the idea of privacy because it's the one area where Bitcoin I feel like has always had interesting solutions but has never had a complete solution and there's a couple of different tools that he talks about uh, with coin join and confidential transactions and stuff in this piece that I want to hit a little bit in the guy's take afterward to talk about where we are in the state of privacy on Bitcoin and where I think trade-offs are viable to make. But I will let Lop kick us off. Let's take a second really quick and thank our sponsors. And we got the Fold Card, which is a replacement for your stupid, boring bank card. This is a debit card where you get sats back. Now, I don't know of any debit card that pays you, much less pays you 1% base in Bitcoin on everything that you purchase. But you can also pay for things with a credit card, get any fiat or airline miles or any stupid thing you have with that, and use the PayPal bill pay feature to pay off that credit card with your Fold card. It is literally sats back on everything, and you get 50,000 sats for free just by going to my link, bitcoinaudible.com slash fold. Check it out. And the responsible sat owner 
withdraws it to their cold card hardware wallet. It is secure, reliable, versatile, and just freaking awesome. And lucky for the Bitcoiners listening to this show, you can get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. Check it out at BitcoinAudible.com slash cold card, or just go to CoinKite and just remember the discount code Bitcoin Audible. It'll give you 9% off. And thank you to those guys for helping make this show possible. And with that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled Bitcoin and the Rise of the Cypherpunks by Jameson Lopp. While many of the innovations in the space are new, they're built on decades of work that led to this point. By tracing this history, we can understand the motivations behind the movement that spawned Bitcoin and share its vision for the future. From Bitcoin to blockchain to distributed ledgers, the cryptocurrency space is fast evolving to the point where it can be difficult to see in which direction it's headed. But we're not without clues. While many of the innovations in the space are new, they're built on decades of work that led to this point. By tracing this history, we can understand the motivations behind the movement that spawned Bitcoin and share its vision of the future. Before the 1970s, cryptography was primarily practiced in secret by military or spy agencies. But that changed when two publications brought it into the open, the U.S. government publication of the Data Encryption Standard and the first publicly available work on public key cryptography, New Directions in Cryptography, by Dr. Whitfield Diffie and Dr. Martin Hellman. In the 1980s, Dr. David Chaum wrote extensively on topics such as anonymous digital cash and pseudonymous reputation systems, which he described in his paper, Security Without Identification, Transaction Systems to Make Big Brother Obsolete. Over the next several years, these ideas coalesced into a movement. In late 1992, Eric Hughes, Timothy C. May and John Gilmore founded a small group that met monthly at Gilmore's company Cygnus Solutions in the San Francisco Bay Area. The group was humorously termed cypherpunks as a derivation of cipher and cyberpunk. The cypherpunks mailing list was formed at about the same time, and just a few months later, Eric Hughes published a cypherpunks manifesto. He wrote, Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. Privacy is not secrecy. A private matter is something one doesn't want the whole world to know. But a secret matter is something one doesn't want anybody to know. Privacy is the power to selectively reveal oneself to the world. That's all good and well, you may be thinking. But I'm not a cypherpunk. I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. As Bruce Schneier has noted... The nothing-to-hide argument stems from a faulty premise that privacy is about hiding a wrong. For example, you likely have curtains over your windows so that people can't see into your home. This isn't because you are undertaking illegal or immoral activities, but simply because you don't wish to worry about the potential cost of revealing yourself to the outside world. If you're reading this, you have directly benefited from the efforts of cypherpunks. Some notable cypherpunks and their achievements. Jacob Applebaum, Tor developer, Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, Dr. Adam Back, inventor of Hashcash and co-founder of Blockstream, Bram Cohen, creator of BitTorrent, Hal Finney, 
main author of PGP 2.0, creator of Reusable Proof of Work. Tim Hudson, co-author of SSLEA, the precursor to OpenSSL. Paul Kaucher, co-author of SSL 3.0. Moxie Marlinspike, founder of Open Whisper Systems, developer of Signal. Stephen Shear, creator of the concept of the Warrant Canary. Bruce Schneier, well-known security author. Zuko Wilcox O'Hearn, Digicash developer and founder of Zcash. Philip Zimmerman, creator of PGP 1.0. The 1990s. This decade saw the rise of the crypto wars in which the U.S. government attempted to stifle the spread of strong commercial encryption. Since the market for cryptography was almost entirely military up to this point, encryption technology was included as a Category 13 item into the U.S. munitions list, which had strict regulations preventing its, quote, export. This limited export-compatible SSL key length to 40 bits, which could be broken in a matter of days using a single personal computer. Legal challenges by civil libertarians and privacy advocates, the widespread availability of encryption software outside the U.S., and a successful attack by Matt Blaze against the proposed government backdoor, the Clipper chip, led the government to back down. In 1997, Dr. Adam Back created Hashcash, which was designed as an anti-spam mechanism that would essentially add a time and computational cost to sending email, thus making spam uneconomical. He envisioned that Hashcash would be easier for people to use than Chalm's Digicash since there was no need for the creation of an account. Hashcash even had some protection against double spending. Later in 1998, Wei Dai published a proposal for B-Money, a practical way to enforce contractual agreements between anonymous actors. He described two interesting concepts that should sound familiar. First, a protocol in which every participant maintains a separate database of how much money belongs to each user. Secondly, a variant of the first system where the accounts of who has how much money are kept by a subset of the participants who are incentivized to remain honest by putting their money on the line. Bitcoin uses the former concept, while quite a few other cryptocurrencies have implemented a variant of the latter concept, which we now call proof-of-stake. The 2000s It's clear that cypherpunks had already been building on each other's work for decades, experimenting and laying the frameworks we needed in the 1990s. But a pivotal point was the creation of cypherpunk money in the 2000s. In 2004, Hal Finney created Reusable Proof of Work, or RPAL, which built on Bax Hashcash. RPALs were unique cryptographic tokens that could only be used once, much like unspent transaction outputs in Bitcoin. However, validation and protection against double spending was still performed by a central server. Nick Zabo published a proposal for BitGold in 2005, a digital collectible that built upon Finney's RPAL proposal. However, Zabo did not propose a mechanism for limiting the total units of BitGold, but rather envisioned that units would be valued differently based upon the amount of computational work performed to create them. Finally, in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto, a pseudonym for a still unidentified individual or individuals, published the Bitcoin White Paper, 
citing both Hashcash and B-Money. In fact, Satoshi emailed Wei Dai directly and mentioned that he learned about B-Money from Dr. Back. Satoshi dedicated a section of the Bitcoin white paper to privacy, which reads, The traditional banking model achieves a level of privacy by limiting access to information to the parties involved and the trusted third party. The necessity to announce all transactions publicly precludes this method, but privacy can still be maintained by breaking the flow of information in another place, by keeping public keys anonymous. The public can see that someone is sending an amount to someone else, but without information linking the transaction to anyone, this is similar to the level of information released by stock exchanges, where the time and size of individual trades, the tape, is made public, but without telling who the parties were. Satoshi Nakamoto triggered an avalanche of progress with a working system that people could use, extend, and fork. Bitcoin strengthened the entire cypherpunk movement by enabling organizations such as WikiLeaks to continue operating via Bitcoin donations, even after the traditional financial system had cut them off. The Struggle for Privacy However, as the Bitcoin ecosystem has grown over the past few years, privacy concerns seem to have been pushed to the back burner. Many early Bitcoin users assumed that the system would give them complete anonymity. But we have learned otherwise as various law enforcement agencies have revealed that they are able to de-anonymize Bitcoin users during investigations. The Open Bitcoin Privacy Project has picked up some of the slack with regard to educating users about privacy and recommending best practices for Bitcoin services. The group is developing a threat model for attacks on Bitcoin wallet privacy. Their model currently breaks attackers into several categories. Blockchain observers link different transactions together to the same identity by observing patterns in the flow of value. Network observers link different transactions and addresses together by observing activity on the peer-to-peer -peer network. Physical adversaries try to find data on a wallet device in order to tamper with it or perform analysis upon it. Transaction participants create transactions that aid them in tracing and de-anonymizing activity on the blockchain. Wallet providers may require personally identifiable information from users and then observe their transactions. Jonas Nick at Blockstream has also done a fair amount of research regarding privacy concerns for Bitcoin users. He has an excellent presentation in which he uncovers a number of privacy flaws, some of which are devastating to SPV Bitcoin clients. One of the greatest privacy issues in Bitcoin is from blockchain observers. Because every transaction on the network is indefinitely public, anyone in the present and future can be a potential adversary. As a result, one of the oldest recommended best practices is to never reuse a Bitcoin address. Satoshi even made note of it in the Bitcoin white paper. As an additional firewall, a new key pair should be used for each transaction to keep them from being linked to a common owner. Some linking is still unavoidable with multi-input transactions, which necessarily reveal that their inputs were owned by the same owner. The risk is that if the owner of a key is revealed, Linking could reveal other transactions that belonged to the same owner. Recent Cypherpunk Innovations 
A multitude of systems and best practices have been developed in order to increase the privacy of Bitcoin users. Dr. Peter Wella authored BIP32, Hierarchical Deterministic or HD Wallets, which makes it much simpler for Bitcoin wallets to manage addresses. While privacy was not Wella's primary motivation, HD wallets make it easier to avoid address reuse because the tech can easily generate new addresses as transactions flow into and out of the wallet. Elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman-Merkel, or ECDHM, addresses are Bitcoin address schemes that increase privacy. ECDHM addresses can be shared publicly and are used by senders and receivers to secretly derive traditional Bitcoin addresses that blockchain observers cannot predict. The result is that ECDHM addresses can be reused, quote-unquote, without the loss of privacy that usually occurs from traditional Bitcoin address reuse. Some examples of ECDHM address schemes include stealth addresses by Peter Todd, BIP-47 reusable payment codes by Justice Ranvia, and BIP-75 out-of-band address exchange by Justin Newton and others. Bitcoin mixing is a more labor-intensive method by which users can increase their privacy. The concept of mixing coins with other participants is similar to the concept of mix networks invented by Dr. Chalm. Several different mixing algorithms have been developed. CoinJoin Blockstream co-founder Gregory Maxwell's original proposal for mixing coins, CoinJoin essentially lets users create a transaction with many inputs from multiple people and then send the coins to many other outputs that pay back to the same people, thus mixing the values together and making it difficult to tell which inputs are related to which outputs. JoinMarket, built by developer Chris Belcher, JoinMarket enables holders of Bitcoin to allow their coins to be mixed via CoinJoin with other users' coins in return for a fee. It uses a kind of smart contract so that your private keys never leave your computer, thus reducing the risk of loss. Put simply, JoinMarket allows you to improve the privacy of Bitcoin transactions for low fees in a decentralized fashion. CoinShuffle a decentralized mixing protocol developed by a group of researchers at Saarland University in Germany. CoinShuffle improves upon CoinJoin. It does not require a trusted third party to assemble the mixing transactions, and thus does not require additional mixing fees. CoinSwap Another concept developed by Maxwell. CoinSwap is substantially different from CoinJoin in that it uses a series of four multi-sig transactions, two escrow payments, two escrow releases, to trustlessly swap coins between two parties. It is much less efficient than CoinJoin, but can potentially offer much greater privacy, even facilitating the swapping of coins between different blockchains. While mixing is tantamount to hiding in the crowd, often the crowd is not particularly large. Mixing should be considered as providing obfuscation rather than complete anonymity because it makes it difficult for casual observers to trace the flow of funds, but more sophisticated observers may still be able to de-obfuscate the mixing transactions. Christoph Atlas, founder of the Open Bitcoin Privacy Project, posted his findings on weaknesses in improperly implemented CoinJoin clients back in 2014. Atlas noted that even with a fairly primitive analysis tool, 
he was able to group 69% of inputs and 53% of a single CoinJoin transaction's outputs. There are even separate cryptocurrencies that have been developed with privacy in mind. One example is Dash, designed by Evan Dufield and Daniel Diaz, which has a feature called DarkSend, an improved version of CoinJoin. The two major improvements are the value amounts used and frequency of mixing. Dash's mixing uses common denominations of 0.1 Dash, 1 Dash, 10, and 100 Dash in order to make grouping of inputs and outputs much more difficult. In each mixing session, users submit the same denominations as inputs and outputs. To maximize the privacy offered by mixing and making timing attacks more difficult, DarkSend runs automatically at set intervals. Another privacy-focused cryptocurrency is not even based on Bitcoin. The Crypto Note white paper was released in 2014 by Nicholas von Saberhagen, and the concept has been implemented in several cryptocurrencies, such as Monero. The primary innovations are cryptographic ring signatures and unique one-time keys. Regular digital signatures, such as those used in Bitcoin, involve a single pair of keys, one public and one private. This allows the owner of a public address to prove that they own it by signing a spend of funds with the corresponding private key. Ring signatures were first proposed in 2001 by Dr. Adi Shamir and others, building upon the group signature scheme that was introduced in 1991 by David Chalm and Eugene von Heist. Ring signatures involve a group of individuals, each with their own private and public key. The statement proved by a ring signature is that the signer of a given message is a member of the group. The main distinction with the ordinary digital signature schemes is that the signer needs a single secret key, but a verifier cannot establish the exact identity of the signer. Therefore, if you encounter a ring signature with the public keys of Alice, Bob, and Carol, you can only claim that one of these individuals was the signer, but you will not be able to know exactly to whom the transaction belongs. It provides another level of obfuscation that makes it more difficult for blockchain observers to track the ownership of payments as they flow through the system. Interesting enough, ring signatures were developed specifically in the context of whistleblowing, as they enable the anonymous leaking of secrets while still proving that the source of the secrets is reputable, an individual who is part of a known group. CryptoNote is also designed to mitigate the risks associated with key reuse and input-to-output tracing. Every address for a payment is a unique one-time key, derived from both the sender's and the recipient's data. As soon as you use a ring signature in your input, it adds more uncertainty as to which output has just been spent. If a blockchain observer tries to draw a graph with used addresses, connecting them via the transactions on the blockchain, it will be a tree because no address was used twice. The number of possible graphs rises exponentially as you add more transactions to the graph, since every ring signature produces ambiguity as to how the value flowed between the addresses. Thus, you can't be certain of which address sent funds to another address. Depending on the size of the ring used for signing, the ambiguity for a single transaction can vary from 1 out of 2 to 1 out of 1,000. Every transaction increases the entropy and creates additional difficulty for a blockchain observer. Upcoming Cypherpunk Innovations While there are still many privacy concerns for cryptocurrency users, 
The future is bright due to the ongoing work of cypherpunks. The next leap forward in privacy will involve the use of zero-knowledge proofs, which were first proposed in 1985 in order to broaden the potential applications of cryptographic protocols. Originally proposed by Dr. Back in 2013 as Bitcoins with Homomorphic Value, Maxwell has been working on confidential transactions, which use zero-knowledge range proofs to enable the creation of Bitcoin transactions in which the values are hidden from everyone except the transaction participants. This is a great improvement on its own, but when you combine confidential transactions with CoinJoin, then you can build a mixing service that severs any links between transaction inputs and outputs. When Maxwell presented sidechain elements at the San Francisco Bitcoin Devs meetup, I recall him saying, One of the greatest regrets held by the Greybeards at the IETF is that the internet was not built with encryption as the default method of transmitting data. Maxwell clearly feels the same way about privacy in Bitcoin and wishes that we had confidential transactions from the very beginning. We have already seen Blockstream implement confidential transactions within the Liquid sidechain in order to mask transfers between exchanges. We also recently saw Maxwell conduct the first successful zero-knowledge contingent payment on the Bitcoin network, or ZKCP. ZKCP is a transaction protocol that allows a buyer to purchase information from a seller using Bitcoin in a trustless manner. The purchased information is only transferred if the payment is made, and it is guaranteed to be transferred if the payment is made. The buyer and seller do not need to trust each other or depend on arbitration by a third party. I wrote about ZeroCoin several years ago and noted the technical challenges that it needed to overcome before the system would be usable. Since then, researchers have managed to make the proofs much more efficient and have solved the trust problem with the initial generation of the system parameters. We are now on the cusp of seeing ZeroCoin's vision realized with the release of Zcash, headed by Wilcox O'Hearn. Zcash offers total payment confidentiality while still maintaining a decentralized network using a public blockchain. Zcash transactions automatically hide the sender, recipient, and value of all transactions on the blockchain. Only those with the correct view key can see the contents of a transaction. Since the contents of Zcash transactions are encrypted in private, the system uses a novel cryptographic method to verify payments. Zcash uses a zero-knowledge proof construction called a ZK-SNARK, developed by its team of experienced cryptographers. Instead of publicly demonstrating spend authority and transaction values, the transaction metadata is encrypted and ZK-SNARKs are used to prove that the transaction is valid. Zcash may very well be the first digital payment system that enables foolproof anonymity. Putting the Punk in Cypherpunk In the decades since the cypherpunks set forth on their quest, computer technology has advanced to the point where individuals and groups can communicate and interact with each other in a totally anonymous manner. Two persons may exchange messages, conduct business, and negotiate electronic contracts without ever knowing the true name or legal identity of the other. It is only natural that governments will try to slow or halt the spread of this technology, citing national security concerns, use of the technology by criminals, and fears of societal disintegration. Obama 
If government can't crack encryption, then people are walking around with a Swiss bank account in their pocket. Cypherpunks know that we must defend our privacy if we expect to have any. People have been defending their privacy for centuries with whispers, darkness, envelopes, closed doors, secret handshakes, and couriers. Prior to the 20th century, technology did not enable strong privacy, but neither did it enable affordable mass surveillance. We now live in a world where surveillance is to be expected, but privacy is not, even though privacy-enhancing technologies exist. We have entered a phase that many are calling the Crypto Wars 2.0. Although the cypherpunks emerged victorious from the first crypto wars, we cannot afford to rest upon our laurels. Zuko has experienced the failure of cypherpunk projects in the past, and he warns that failure is still possible. Tweet from Zuko Wilcox Dear fellow Bitcoiners, No, we cannot just rest assured that Bitcoin's unique value proposition outweighs all other considerations. January 6, 2016 Cypherpunks believe that privacy is a fundamental human right, including privacy from governments. They understand that the weakening of a system's security for any reason, including access by trusted authorities, quote-unquote, makes the system insecure for everyone who uses it. Cypherpunks write code. They know that someone has to write software to defend privacy, and thus they take up the task. They publish their code so that fellow cypherpunks may learn from it, attack it, and improve it. Their code is free for anyone to use. Cypherpunks don't care if you don't approve of the software they write. They know that software can't be destroyed and that widely dispersed systems can't be shut down. Begin PGP Signed Message The original cypherpunks mailing list no longer exists. But there are more cypherpunks now than ever before. We discuss our ideas on a wide variety of email lists, chat rooms, and social media platforms. There is much work to be done. While great progress has been made designing and deploying privacy-enhancing systems, they are still far from perfect, and it is still far too difficult for the average person to benefit from them. There are many battles left to be fought in the crypto wars. Take up your keyboards and let us proceed together apace. End PGP Signature All right, and that concludes Jameson Lop's uh, piece, Bitcoin and the Rise of the Cypherpunks, a blast from the past back in 2016. Let's thank our sponsor really fast, which is the Fold Card. I want to make it clear that the Fold Card is a debit card which means you can use this as your main banking card. And what's cool is the trick that they that I use all of the time. It's how, actually how I pay, because the only two credit cards I have now are at one that's on Amazon and then the Amazon Prime credit card and then the Apple um, MasterCard or whatever it is. But I pay both of those off with the fold card, which you normally can't do with a debit card, but you can do this trick where you can do PayPal bill pay and it will let you use a debit card that you put into PayPal to pay off those other cards. So with this trick, you can actually get cash back. You can get your fiat trash or your points or whatever it is from a credit card. And if you don't pay any interest on it, if you pay it off immediately with the fold card, you get 1% back in sats on top of it. 
And I'm very glad that I decided to bring that up because I had forgotten that I have a few Apple subscriptions that land on my Apple card automatically and I hadn't paid it off. So I just got 1% back by paying off my Apple card. So when I say it's 1% back on everything, you can literally get 1% back in sats on everything. And then if you shop on Amazon like Prime Day or you use Uber or DoorDash or any number of uh, major merchants, they have gift cards with even more sats back. Like DoorDash is like 7%, 10% sometimes. All of my Uber, I've, I don't use my debit card on any Uber. I get uh, gift cards with 3% back using the Fold card. And same thing with Amazon. 2.5% right now for everything that I buy on Amazon. I'm telling you this stacks quickly. Check out the Fold card if you haven't, and you get 50,000 sats for free for signing up with my link, bitcoinaudible.com fold. So one of the fascinating things to me about cypherpunk history and where Bitcoin arose from, the community that it arose from, is just how much the cypherpunks had an effect on the internet. Like we're really talking about the foundations of some of the most important protocols and security mechanisms and, and elements of the internet itself. I mean, that list that he read off of just like the who's who of some of the people who are in the cypherpunks, and that is not the whole list. There are a ton of different people who were involved in that and contributed to so many different things around the base protocols for encryption, for internet traffic, for sharing, like BitTorrent, like Bram Cohen and, and things. And these people all kind of coalesced into this community all around these this philosophy, the, these ideas. And I think there's something kind of fascinating about the fact that this philosophy is self-sustaining. You, you know, there's this there's this element of kind of evolution in that where those those things that tend to sustain like the reason order arises is because order sustains is because order is more likely to stick around than disorder and therefore order that is more likely to replicate or to copy itself is going to stick around longer than disorder that does none of that it's simply the natural state of existence and there is something in the philosophy of autonomy for the human and privacy and extending the critical elements of sustaining the individual you know an analogy that i like to use or that i, I like to think about when i'm trying to make sense of why these digital systems because i do think about the economy as kind of us becoming a collective organism in a sense and uh, the same thing with ai and bitcoin and all of these different technologies these networking technologies that allow us to behave like an algae, like, like a fungi or something that organizes and specializes each of the human behaviors and parts of the production process that, you know, the, the highways, the, the communication systems, it's literally as if we have blood flow. We have, we have these critical veins and arteries that move, um, that move resources around that organize resources, money that, that tells us where need, resources need to go and aggregate information that no, no person can actually know. No board member or group of experts actually has access to because it's based on value feedback of individuals. 
and uh, you know our neural network, the internet, and AI. These things, like it, it genuinely seems like we are creating this weird joint species. We are becoming cells in something greater. But there's something also in that the only reason it works is because of the autonomy of the individual. Going back to the idea of money and the fact that money is organizing information and organizing resources or displaying information, displaying the result of information that helps organize uh, resources and get specialization get skills get labor and get resources to where they need to go in order to be most productive be most valuable the only reason it works is because of the human autonomy to judge by their individual situation the value in relation to them that's the only way to actually communicate the value so there's this interesting element in the thing that best secures the individual is also the thing that best sustains the entire system as a whole because the system as a whole is only the result of millions of individuals' independent judgments and actions. So when I apply that, when I think about that in the context of the cypherpunk history and the goals that they were trying to accomplish, is that it seems like this little, these, this small pocket of cypherpunks, this philosophy on the internet, is trying to create it's trying to keep the human tradition alive in the digital space because of how easily it could devolve into a giant centralized top-down system. But I genuinely believe that that is not sustainable. And I think we're seeing the results of its lack of sustainability. It's the, the destruction that is caused by it and that it is largely a consequence of the incredible additional productivity and additional communication that is enabled by these technologies that actually makes it inflates its sustainability for a short to medium term period of time you know it's it's like fiat the the imbalance of the debt bubble and the overconsumption takes a very long time to play out. And I think centralization is largely the same way. In the short to medium term, it appears, and I mean that like from societal standpoint. So we're talking about absolute bare minimum short is like 10 years, mid to long term starts in the 100 year range, or like, right? We're talking about like centuries here. Um, you know, four or five generations of of passing, kind of going back to the fourth turning sort of concept. But that every time we lead ourselves into a crisis with an unsustainable system, we kind of, there's always this underlying philosophy, there's these these underlying technologies that tend to persist, that tend to create order, that tend to reinforce and benefit the individual and uh, and therefore create a sustainable collective a a sustainable larger institutional organization of what we would call humankind and when we lose sight of that when we put the quote-unquote collective before the individual we actually destroy what we do is we put the abstraction in front of the thing that's real and we end up destroying we end up sacrificing the very thing it's like sacrificing cell walls in order to make sure the organism is really healthy because we need to make sure that all cells are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, but then failing to recognize that without a cell wall, nothing in the organism works. Like it all falls apart. Every cell has to have its job and its 
autonomy to play its part in order for the collective to even exist. You realize that the organism isn't even there. It's just a bunch of cells. And if you start sacrificing the, the processes of the individual cell, nothing works. It, 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 it's integral to the thing. Like I talk about that in the context of AI as well is, um, as people think that AI is like this other species or something, it's like, no, it's not. It requires human feedback and it requires human input in order for the language and the value, the judgment of the AI to make a decision or to, you know, do something or to uh, create something or to give an answer for it to have any idea, any connection to reality. It is a it's a consequence of humanity, not a thing separate from humanity. And so the exact the same um the same analogy, I use that same sort of analogy with the organism thing is that which is more important, the cells that make up the brain or the brain itself? Which one's in charge? Is the brain the master or are the cells the master? And the reality is, is that they exist at the same time. Like the brain is just the collection of cells. If you take away all the cells, there's no brain. But this is all just to go back, this is a lengthy analogy to talk about how amazing it is, the, the amount of power that this philosophy has had in the dark, like just unaware, you know, the cypherpunks were insanely obscure, despite being an unbelievable foundation of the internet, of being, I mean, you, you know, just BitTorrent alone. I talk about that a lot just because it was a, it was a big part of my growing up and my young experience with the internet. It was, it, and it was the first thing that I realized was more than just a toy, right? When, when I was young, I, I was playing around with everything and, you know, it, it was fun to share movies and file. Well, you didn't share movies then. You had a 56K modem. You shared images and it took three minutes. You got three kilobytes per second, three kilobits per second, excuse me. And you just thought you were flying, right? You just had the best connection in the world. I'm going to have this picture in less than 15 minutes. It's going to be downloaded so fast. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and download a song too. I'll have it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be able to listen to the song tonight, but it was all just a game. It was just this cool thing that, you know, you could use. It was, and it was, I put it in the same category. Like it was, you know, my PlayStation or my Nintendo 64 or whatever. And the internet and all the cool things, the little toys and gadgets and things that I can do on the internet. And it wasn't until probably college. I can't, I can't remember where in my life I, I started to realize the impact of this, but it just dawned on me that BitTorrent was literally changing the world. That it was fundamentally altering entire industries and entire business propositions and the concept of how we thought about music and how we thought about the product itself versus the artist versus the owner and the record label. And I started like digging into like understanding how these things actually worked. And I was seeing a much, much bigger picture and it was like rediscovering it, right? Is it went from this toy to this insanely powerful thing that I ignorantly participated in that I just had no idea what I was doing and that was that was kind of my first taste of what the internet was doing to the world and uh, it wasn't super long after that that I found the cypherpunks but I didn't I didn't really dig into it in depth 
I think it was more like just kind of at arm's length, like knew of their existence. And then WikiLeaks and then, you know, all the other things, you just kind of cascade down the list. And if you start, if you just have that philosophy in mind and you just kind of start down that rabbit hole online, you just end up at the cyberpunks, no matter where you come from. That, that's where it leads you to. And, you know, the cyberpunk mailing list was only ever like a thousand people or something like that. It was, it was even... It was never big. It was it was always just a corner. And, you know, he talks about it. Lop talks about it in this piece. It was it was Gilmore, Timothy May, and Eric Hughes, and they they, they one of the things. I'm pretty sure this was in the book. Oh, it wasn't how the internet was made. Ah, oh, crap. Maybe it was this machine kills secrets. I can't remember. I, I, I'll, I'll I'll say that one and I'll recommend that one because that's a fantastic book anyway. Um, but but the, the cypherpunks thing was actually, I think it was Gilmore's wife maybe who actually made the joke that they were cypherpunks instead of cyberpunks. And it was like they were like meeting at his house. Like imagine the smallest Bitcoin or Noster conference that you've ever been to. These were the cypherpunks. And they built some of the foundational pieces of the internet completely unknown to everyone else. And there's something fascinating about how Bitcoin has brought all of this to light. That it's as if, it's as if you know, the cypherpunk philosophy and the, the cypherpunk ideal and the cypherpunk mission was this tiny little flame that tended to persist that that was just enough to light that flame again in the next generation or the next person that found the project and you know decided to do a little coding or build some little thing and still ended up you know making a difference and that these things continued to persist and they continued to have an impact but and this was always something that I thought was going to be insanely powerful about bitcoin is that it it allowed money to speak the philosophy of the cypherpunks, to bring capital behind the codification of the sort of autonomy the cypherpunks had always been striving for, and the number of times they tried to create Bitcoin. And I think, I think also there was, there was this element of what Satoshi solved was an economic problem, while everyone else was so focused on the technological privacy and um uh i guess really just privacy like cyberpunks were really all about privacy that was one of the major privacy and autonomy were the the fundamental goals and satoshi had to solve a massive economic and consensus problem that is orders of magnitude more valuable in order to solve the privacy problem and that was that was always one of the things that struck me about Bitcoin on looking at Bitcoin on a long enough time scale is that I thought we had everything in place to solve the privacy problem, but there was just, we genuinely had a super, super low level foundational protocol to build off of. And that's where lightning, because this was pre lightning. Well, not really. The lightning white paper was out in 2015, but obviously Lop didn't bring it up in this piece in 2016 because it wasn't I mean, it was 2018. It's a full two years later that it even launched, that the the beta and the reckless era um, even arose on Bitcoin. 
So lightning was far from a thing that even existed. It was just a, wow, what a fascinating idea this could maybe work. Um, because it was, it was an extension of Satoshi's original idea of channels, except that this was a way to, um, th this was a better security model for or a better scaling model for the security concept of a channel to open up a channel and then do an unlimited number of payments off chain and this is actually a huge huge privacy benefit more specifically privacy for payments rather than necessarily privacy for the ownership of some subset of bitcoin so that economic activity is private and the the really fascinating thing is that the payer themselves has the greatest amount of privacy so when i am paying you over lightning you're you're uh unless we do like blinded paths which is great that these things exist or whatever but you know there is still a lot of openness in in lightning uh and um when you are running a node obviously your channels are public i mean that's part of the point you're part of a liquidity network and you're gossiping you're, you're broadcasting to the network that you have liquidity in this direction or that direction so that people will use your channels to route payments but as a payer as a as a user or a consumer when you are making a payment to someone like if you make a payment to me i have you can see my node because you know i generate an invoice and you pay it and you make a route to my node but i have no idea who you are I have no idea where your payment came from. I can't trace it back through the Lightning Network. All I know is which channel it came in on at. That is, I think, a undervalued element of Lightning. Now, this doesn't mean Lightning is a perfect privacy system. Far from it. But it is a huge leap forward in privacy and the way we use Bitcoin and the way payments are made uh, within this ecosystem that I think is really undervalued and poorly appreciated because I, I do think that privacy is one of the most important and, and also confidential transaction is, is, is something that Lot brings up in this which liquid the liquid side chain has confidential transactions and you know there were bulletproofs and all of these things back in the day I think most of this was a lot of this was at least I heard of it through Greg Maxwell. I'm not sure the degree of his projects it was. I'm sure there were a lot of people working on it. Um, but uh, uh, confidential transactions, the problem with confidential transactions that it never ended up on the base layer, or at least it hasn't yet ended up on the base layer, is that it, there is a significant computational load for confidential transactions. But I think when you look at it through a scaling perspective with the ability to then do lightning to then do uh, arc or fediment or any of these side chain or second and third layer sort of protocols and uh, systems on top of it i almost wonder if it's a worthwhile trade-off i i mean maybe maybe it's not but it's the only thing privacy is the only thing that i feel like there are worthy trade-offs to be made um, that if it becomes a little bit more difficult to run a node, but you're able to get a substantial increase, a substantial additional guarantee for privacy and protection of people who own Bitcoin and use Bitcoin, I tend to think that's worthwhile. And that's because as a monetary base, as a secure, independent base for monetary security or a, a, like a monetary ownership, 
I think privacy is enough of a benefit that it's worth a minor trade-off. Largely, I think the major problem has been with the inability to audit because that's when you start entering into the economic trade-off. You, you enter into the, the fact that the ability to prove the existence of exactly this amount of Bitcoin comes into question, and that is a problem. That because 21 million, this, this is genuinely what I think Satoshi's greatest achievement was. Not that he arbitrarily set some amount of Bitcoin to be the complete amount, but just that the finite nature of Bitcoin and the way consensus was achieved and protected through proof of work that created this, this hash wall um, around the past that this is set in the immutability of the monetary policy and that the economics fall apart if you cannot guarantee. Like, if I can't run the numbers, you know, like uh, Pierre Richard always has that joke, right? Is that, you know, Ethereans can't run the numbers. Um, nobody knows how many Ethereum there actually are. Uh, and I participated in that fun era where I, you know, booted up my node and I ran the numbers and I said, this is exactly how many Bitcoin exist. And it was great. Everybody's pu publishing the same number because you can easily see and you can easily audit the entire chain and you know exactly how many Bitcoin exist. As soon as that is brought into question, and I think that's largely why that is, that is a difficult trade-off. That is something that I think puts too great a risk. And even if there are pretty decent cryptographic assumptions about the security of the blind proof or whatever it is, you know, of it's definitely, it's definitely adds up right. But if it ever breaks, if that proof doesn't stand up for, you know, I, I think there's always an element of, we have to assume that cryptographic protocols or cryptographic standards have a shelf life that maybe it's 30 years from now and SHA-256 gets broken. Um, but you know, prior, even Satoshi talked about this, is that we likely can see it long before it gets there and that we can have a hard fork prepared. And that would be one of those days or one of those events in Bitcoin's history that I expect to happen at some point, that there will be some sort of signature scheme that needs to be changed or hashing scheme, whatever it is, but something fundamental needs to change and we need a hard fork and then we plan for a hard fork 10 years out um, whether it's quantum computers, whatever, who knows. Um, but that some sort of fundamental... Well, I mean, actually, there's there's already the timestamp thing, right? So we will have to hard fork, and that will probably be baked in 50 years before we get there. But that's kind of a nothing change, so that, that doesn't quite apply. Um, but I suspect there will be some sort of signature public key shift. Something, something in the realm of the cryptography of Bitcoin will need to change and maybe we can do it with a soft fork but if it's a hard fork like if we have to if it's kind of an emergency change so to speak even though you know we might be years and years in advance still a hard fork in that way would be a huge huge deal like it would be a major major problem or at least a major challenge for bitcoin's history it will likely be some sort of scar at some point in bitcoin's history in 2040 2050 whatever but in that sense, it's something that we could see coming and we would know if there was ever anything, any fundamental break or fundamental, a, a great example actually is back in 20, 
I guess it was 13 was the inflation bug, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where somebody, I think it was an overflow bug, and somebody printed a billion Bitcoin out of existence. It was immediately visible. Everybody saw it. And because of that, it was actually correctable. It was, it was able to be fixed. Here's the problem if you have something like, something that obscures the amounts, something that relies on a cryptographic proof of an amount rather than the simple visibility, the simple open auditability of this is how many Bitcoin exist, is that if it breaks, nobody knows. Nobody can see it. And maybe, maybe there's a way, ah, here's, a, here's a perfect example, actually. Um, granted, this wasn't something that broke, this was just, this was just a scam, um, but Bitcoin Dark, one of the ocean, one of the many of Bitcoin forks and a prime example in the ocean of shitcoins, of shitcoin behavior and tactics, they decided to make private Bitcoin and sell it to everybody. And they had this private pool, this pool of funds in Bitcoin Dark that, and I think this was sort of like Zcash. And I think this is why Zcash really didn't, a lot of people thought that because Zcash had uh, ZK Snarks and uh, there was some very interesting, I mean, Zuko Wilcox, right? He was a giant in the history of, you know, cryptography and privacy and those sorts of things. Um, but a lot of people assumed that they just had complete privacy in it. As I understood it, um, that there was actually normal Zcash was actually something that you you did not have privacy over and you had to do something specifically to get like kind of in a pool of people who are making private payments. Um, I'm pretty sure it was this, that Bitcoin dark was leveraging this idea of like, here's the dark Bitcoin and then here's normal Bitcoin. And you would send your Bitcoin up into the pool of dark funds. And they issued this and it was like 12 months or 13 months or something like that. And and somebody was withdrawing that they were moving funds out of the Bitcoin dark pool and they were selling it on exchanges and stuff. And somebody had to manually do this because the protocol wasn't throwing up any red flags. Like, I mean, it was obviously designed, but they were obfuscating the amounts in this Bitcoin dark pool in their shitcoin. And it turns out somebody was doing the math on it. Somebody's like, something's not right here. This, these, these amounts aren't quite adding up. Some, something's wrong. And they realized that somebody had made like at least 300,000 extra coins. So there weren't 21 million Bitcoin dark. There were like 21 million, 300,000 or 500,000 or something like that. Or maybe it was 3 million. I don't know. It was a lot of, it was a lot of Bitcoin. It was a lot of shitcoin dark. And they had made it specifically in the dark pool during the issuance, like during the original creation, the, the issuance of the, of the token, excuse me, of the network itself, like the very early days, and they just left it there. And they waited until a bunch of people were using it, and the market grew a whole bunch, and nobody could see it. Nobody could audit it. And uh, then a ton of people moved their, you know, well, a ton, a bunch of shitcoiners moved their funds over there and were using Bitcoin Dark, and they thought they had the best version of Bitcoin. And it turns out it was a giant scam, and they just dumped on everybody a whole bunch of uh, fake coins that they had issued themselves. And they specifically got away with it. And no one could see the extra funds. They could not audit 
the scam because they had used a privacy, quote unquote, a privacy protocol on top of Bitcoin, on top of this fork, in order to obfuscate all of the amounts so that people didn't know that these coins had been issued. So it can happen purposefully. It can happen like maliciously, like uh, just like Bitcoin Dark. Or it could happen by accident. It could happen because of a bug. It could happen because of a Bitcoin overflow. And when you're making a big change like that, like confidential transactions or something, there is that, there is always that trade-off, especially if you cannot audit the amount. And that's why I tend to think the solution, well, there is no solution, right? There's, there's just better and better options and a series of cascading solutions and here's like oh my god there's a great article which one did we do this we we talked about nostr because one of the one of the really fascinating things is satoshi's original potential for privacy on top of bitcoin is actually realized when bitcoin becomes a circular economy because one of the big issues with privacy on top of bitcoin is the fact that we're so close to kyc exchanges that like like you're only you're only two to three steps away or transactions away from some kyc exchange that has to report to a regulatory agency or a government or the irs or something and then you know two transactions later it's back at kraken or uh, coinbase or some crap like that right well then it's really easy to make the connections of those two transactions that happened in between but when you have a circular economy, when those those gaps between K, points of KYC become 10 transactions or 20 transactions or 50 transactions, it's a whole lot harder to trace who owns what. When you're actually doing business with people, when you're actually exchanging, when you're getting zaps over Noster or selling stuff on Noster classifieds. And that's where privacy, the pseudonymity of Bitcoin actually becomes a huge benefit, even though it's a drawback in the 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 bridge, the fiat rails that bring us between Bitcoin and fiat, that fiat basically becomes a huge privacy vulnerability of the Bitcoin system because Bitcoin is so auditable and traceable. But that's where when you have these combinations of protocols, you have Bitcoin, you have Lightning, you have Noster, you have payment codes, you have ARC and Liquid and Fediment and all of these things. Like as we kind of get into this new era where there's lots of activity just moving funds around and uh you're doing bit there's a circular economy um, and nostra is actually great because when you have privacy when you have private communications when you have direct and private communications you can share there's out of band means to make certain communications that are actually that actually expose you either on lightning or you know, with a public invoice, a public invoice is a great, a great example, actually, is that if you can share an invoice privately, you can essentially prevent people from eavesdropping on what your node is and where its position is and what your channels are. If you don't reveal that that's your node, except to, except directly to the people that you're paying with. Or, of course, you could do you could use a service like Nodeless or uh, you could bridge it. You could do a custodial service like this is something that I do a lot is when I'm doing there's the example of the Bitcoin Basics episode I did about keys and I left out, I generated a seed and moved, I don't remember what it was, 20 bucks in Bitcoin, 50 bucks in Bitcoin to it or something like that. And then left it so that people could get the, get the seed phrase, punch it into their wallet and restore it and get the Bitcoin. Well, one of the things that I specifically do so that I'm not 
exposing my Bitcoin balances or some wallet to it is I move it to a custodian or I, or I just buy Bitcoin and just withdraw it from the custodian so that my, my funds are not connected to it. Like, like where I am, uh, excuse me, my addresses and my wallet are not connected to something that I publicly said, here's $50 in Bitcoin. And you can actually use that same thing. The reason I mentioned Nodeless specifically is because they're no KYC. So if you like accept a Bitcoin payment or a Lightning payment or whatever, and then withdraw it to your your thing, that you can just have uh, an email address. They they don't really have to know anything about you. Um, whereas somebody like Strike will know who you are if you fill out all of your stuff. Um, but you can have Wallet of Satoshi, um, Albi. Like these sorts of things where you can receive payments, Phoenix wallet, like all of these uh, non-custodial lightning wallets that you can receive large amounts of payments and all you're identified is by your phone or your app or something. You have a VPN and when someone makes a payment to you, all they see is Phoenix, right? All they see is the async lightning node and then you can send it out. You can atomic swap, you can send it out of your custodian, whatever it is to you and you have payment privacy from the person who is paying you. Because you basically use some sort of a, a service or an app or anything else as your sort of front end to then give you that separation to your funds, to your savings on your cold card, that sort of thing. Now, this is an extremely simple method. It's not, this is not about privacy from governments or spooks or surveillance apparatuses, right? Like these, these things will still be able to trace what's going on. But I think with enough time and the th all of these protocols and different technologies working together and with like like jam I, it's i'm super excited actually because join market has been one of those things lop specifically brings up join market and join market is one of those ones that i used a long long time ago on terminal and it's actually been around for a really long time and it was actually really cool to finally see it i'm not sure if y'all noticed that on the embassy and the umbral node apps and i'm sure like on raspy blitz or whatever too I, I don't exactly know i those are the only two nodes that i have right now um but uh that on those nodes you can now just download an interface for jam for join market and that's really really cool to see because and then there's oh man mutiny just came out of beta so there's a uh vortex a a coin join into lightning channels to have a private lightning wallet that's based in the browser um which is really really cool and interesting to see how that comes now i'm not a huge fan of lightning wallets in the browser specifically anyway but at least in this context it's something that's great for being widely compatible um and it will be interesting to see god man it there's there's part of me that loves and hates the pwa thing that's coming up because it means that apple can't control apple can't stop it from happening um and you know the ios and the platform controls are basically obsoleted but there's also an element of having all of your wallets and nostr clients and everything in the browser and payment access it is it is what it is i guess it is what it is um just you just got to make sure you got your savings you got your cold storage on your cold card. You got that shit tucked away and you got it secure and you were holding your own keys and it's not exposed to the internet because I think while at the same time we're getting, we're getting the benefits of self-custody, we're doing so at the risk of the environment that we are getting self-custody in. Like, so 
it's a huge improvement over custodial solutions, right? It's huge. It's a huge improvement over somebody else just holding your keys, but it is also a downgrade from the security you would normally get from a sort of standalone application that it's easier to audit and uh, easier to make secure. It's more succinct. It's just like, like I talk about it all the time with cold card and with Bitbox and with hardware wallets in general is get the Bitcoin only version. Well, cold card is just Bitcoin only period. Um, but that if you're getting any of the other Bitcoin wallets um, or any of the other crypto wallets, you get the Bitcoin only version because, and this is why cold card is Bitcoin only is because doing more things is a vulnerability. Simply put, like if you if you have to support 30 shit coins, well, then at the very least, your focus is spread out. You're spread thin on the amount of uh, problems that you could have or the attack vectors, then the vulnerabilities that you could have. If you're focused totally on Bitcoin and you have Bitcoin only and that's your only attack surface. You can really narrow it down to just these are the five things, the five modes of communication and the five um, exact specifications for how information can be exchanged back and forth, etc. Like doing less. And this is part of Bitcoin philosophy and cyberpunk philosophy and everything. Doing less better means less vulnerable. There is a smaller attack surface and it means it's going to last longer and it's going to be more secure. Um, or at least it lends itself to that being possible. Whereas even with brilliant experts and developers and cryptographers and everything, if you build something huge and complex with a thousand different touch points, you're, you're, it doesn't matter how great everybody is involved in the project. There's a very high likelihood that you know, your attack surface is just so big that you just can't see all of the possible outcomes. So anyway, um, privacy is that thing that I, and you know, I, I love ARC. Um, there's some elements that I wish would change in the actual implementation of ARC. And we talked about that a couple of times on the show now, and that will come back up, I'm sure, especially as things come to fruition in like, you know, six months down the road. But there are a ton of other really great privacy enhancements and you know cashew and fetty and all of these things that i think um lend themselves to being able to realize this dream because of the incredible economic and decentralized base that bitcoin provides and i really think that's where the the altcoins went wrong is failing to understand that the economics come first and the privacy is a feature that's possible if you have a strong enough economic foundation, a strong enough, an immutable, deeply secure consensus that enables a decentralization that is reliable enough that you can build anything you want in the layers on top. And it's exciting to watch this continue to improve. And I always like to go back and see that perspective from six, seven years ago and where things were to compare to where they are now. Um, so don't forget to thank and check out Fold and The Cold Card for supporting this show and sponsoring us to keep this thing alive. And please uh, rate on Apple Podcasts, on your podcast app, share it out, 
Um, if you have any clips and you want to share it out on Noster, I've been zapping the hell out of everybody who shares a clip of the show. I want to make a little bit more of an effort to really get the show out there because it's grown organically for a really, really long time. Um, but uh, I want to kind of push, I want to get it out there to new people, um, to the people who are coming into Bitcoin, because I think we're going to be in another bull market in the next, you know, six months to a year. And I want to head it off. I want to get in front of them and I want to make sure that they find the signal of Bitcoin Audible instead of getting roped back into the crypto shitcoin tornado and that we do this all over again. Um, it just, it would save a lot of trouble, you know? So uh, if you like the show, uh, please subscribe, please share it out and uh, leave a review. All of those things are a really, really huge help. Oh, and Boost on Fountain uh, to get us to the top of the charts. I really, really appreciate it, and it's awesome. I've been way, way behind, but I have been uh, recently catching up on uh, the boost notes and the comments you guys have been leaving. So thank you, thank you so much, and thank you to the Audionauts, and I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. All political theories assume that most individuals are very ignorant. Those who plead for liberty differ in that they include among the ignorant themselves as well as the wisest. F.A. Hayek <laughs>